as well. I'm going to pray and we're going to dedicate this time to God as we come to his word. Lord Jesus, we do come to you recognising that you are both the lion and the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah who ushered in the victory of God over the powers of evil and death and sin, but also the lamb of God who gave himself for those same things. We pray that you would meet with us in the Holy Spirit now as we come before your word, that you would teach us to be as little ones before you. So please humble our hearts and please show us your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are coming uh, to the end of chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel. And chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel teaches about uh, how we are to be the disciples of Jesus on the mission of God. And so for this whole chapter, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it's going to be like for them on this mission. And now we get to the last part of his instruction before he sends them out. And he's describing what attitude they are to have about themselves and what the attitude of those who will believe should have also. And it's not quite what you would expect. They're unlikely sorts of people that Jesus chooses. One such unlikely person from the Old Testament is the prophet Jonah. If you're familiar with Jonah, uh, he is the guy that got swallowed by a fish, coughed up onto land, and then went and proclaimed the good news of God to a pagan city. The strange thing about Jonah is that he was a dud of a prophet. You heard that right? He was a dud of a prophet. It's been said that he's the worst prophet in the whole Old Testament because he didn't want to go. God said, you need to go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim to them that they need to repent. And he's like, I'm getting in a ship and going the other direction. Because Jonah didn't want anything to do with what God had planned. He was on his own journey. And so he said, God, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. Of course, that's a very dangerous thing to do with God. There was a big storm and, they, and the people on the boat realized the storm was because of Jonah. And so they threw Jonah off the ship. Jonah again then gets eaten by the big fish. God obviously preserves his life and then the big fish coughs him up and Jonah then ends up going back on the path that God had set for him. But even after he sees the most... Mer- most miraculous repentance in the Old Testament, a whole city of pagan, that is, non-Jewish people, turned to God in the huge act of repentance. The whole city of Nineveh repented. He's still upset about it, Jonah. He's got a bad attitude. And he, but God still used him profoundly. And that is one of the strange things that we see in the Bible one of the strange things that we're going to see today is that God chooses to use average, ordinary people like you and me to share the good news of hope about himself. Average, ordinary people like you and me. But he wants to deal with our attitude first. What kind of disciples 
would Jesus have? And so firstly, I want to deal with two types of disciples we might expect Jesus to have and one sort of disciple that we don't. The first sort of disciple that we might expect is in our text for today. Uh, and it's in verse 41. It says, The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. So a prophet is the sort of disciple that you might expect Jesus to have. And a prophet in the Bible is really someone who speaks God's word. In the Old Testament, prophets spoke verbatim God's word. And so we see a, a big chunk of the Old Testament is those words that God spoke through these prophets. There's the old saying from the King James Bible, Thus saith the Lord, only a prophet could say those words in the Old Testament. Now, of course, now in these times, uh, we don't say with the same authority, Thus saith the Lord, unless we're reading the Bible. In which case we can say, Thus saith the Lord. The Lord. This idea of being a prophet, this expectation that God's people would be prophet, is actually right and true. God's people should have a prophetic edge to them. That is, they should speak God's words to people. They should speak God's words to people. That means that if you're a Christian here today, you should be a word person. You should be someone who is on about the Bible and cares deeply about the message of the Bible. In fact, you can't really be a Christian if you don't care what the Bible says. It's as if ignoring the one who you claim to believe in. So we must consider ourselves as disciples of Jesus, rightly, to be word people. We also remember that people are saved by the listening or the hearing of God's word. No one can come to faith unless they hear the word of God. We also know that it's the, Holy, the Word is what the Holy Spirit uses to grow us into godly, God-glorifying people. And so the, the Word of God is intricately important to the life of the Christian and the life of every disciple. You should be a Word person. You should have a prophetic edge to what you do. That means you should be on about God's Word and you should speak it to others. Christians are supposed to share the word with one another, building one another up. Christians are to share the word with those who don't hold the Christian faith and to share the hope that they have in Jesus with those who don't know him. And so rightly, we should expect disciples to be prophets of a sort. There is a problem, of course, with being word people, is that we can quite easily intellectually intellectualize the Bible. That is, we can think it's all about knowledge. And the more knowledge of the Bible that you have, the more that you're a word person, the more Bible-focused that you are, then you will be better in the eyes of others. And so even subconsciously, we can devote all of our time to learning more about the Bible rather than learning more about the God who authored it. Now, it's a very subtle difference, and yet the former, that is, learning about the Bible for its sake and for your own glory, leads to pride very easily. Now, I was at a 30th birthday party uh, a couple of years ago, and I've been reading this great book which had all the answers in it. 
And it wasn't the Bible, it was another book, but it had all the answers in it about how to talk to people who don't hold the Christian faith about difficult subjects. And so uh, I went up to, uh, was talking to a friend of mine I knew at this party and started talking about the Christian faith. And I was like, I'm loaded up, I've got all the ammunition I need, I'm just, just waiting to let go of it all. And as the conversation got on, I was like, you know, I've, I've got the answers here, but this conversation is not going well at all. And at the end of the conversation, I realised that I'd totally offended that other person and I'd made a fool of myself and I really wasn't that good after all. And the problem with that is that I had gone in wanting to win the argument rather than to testify about Jesus. I had gone in with pride that I'll show them, I'll tell them what's what. If anyone comes up with some reason that Jesus is not the Son of God, I've got 10 reasons why he is the Son of God, no matter what you believe in. And yet it was about me, not Jesus getting the glory and this person hearing the words of hope. As I quite easily, being a Bible person can lead to being a proud person. If you want an even better example of this, look at the Apostle Paul. He said, because the surpassing, the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received, he was at great risk of becoming conceited. That is excessively proud. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so there is a problem with being a word person, is that there is a tendency for Christians to become proud people. And you probably wouldn't know it if you were, because proud people don't like to look inwards. And so we must be careful then, as disciples of Jesus, when it comes to being prophets, that is, people who speak God's word to others. That's the first type of disciple that you might expect. The second is a righteous person. So this is the second half of verse 41. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. What's a righteous person? What's the sort of disciple you might expect a righteous uh, a disciple you might expect Jesus to have? That is a person who does God's works. So prophet are people who speak God's word, and a righteous person is a person who does God's works. And of course, the whole nation of Israel was supposed to be an obedient people to the holy God they had, and their good lives were supposed to be a light to the nations. And they failed terribly at that. But of course, that is a calling that God has on every Christian as well. We're supposed to be people who do God's works. It's so important. It's so important to do that. The Bible says that they will know you for your love for one another. That is that the world around us will see the love that Christians have for one another and go, gee, that's amazing. Gee, it's incredible how Christians love each other so much. They're willing to give their time, their effort, their lives for one another. I want to be a part of that. It's a great witness to the outside community. When we do good works, when we do God's works, we are saying that we are ambassadors of the God who sent us. An ambassador of a nation represents that nation to the rest of the world. And in the same way, Christians are called to be representatives of Jesus to the rest of the world. And one of the primary ways we do that are by living good, godly lives. Thirdly, people will take you seriously 
if your life is transformed by God. No one's going to listen to you if at work you're just cussing and swearing like everyone else and then say you're a Christian. They'll be like, yeah, right. Or I don't want to be a Christian if that person is. But if your life is different, if your life is changed, of course, people are going to go, hey, there's something different about that person. They might give you a hard time for it, and they probably will. We've talked about persecution in the last few weeks. But they will notice that you live a specially good life because of the God you serve. One of the other reasons that it's important to be a works person is because people hate a hypocrite. They hate them. The world hates hypocrites. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed recently, but we keep seeing these famous people who profess to be very good and moral and upstanding. Many of them are Christian leaders having terrible moral failures. And there's like a pile on once they come out. Everyone's into them and only lasts a few weeks. But people hate hypocrites. And so we're constantly seeing the need for Christians to be righteous persons and people who do God's works. But there is a problem with being works people, and that is that we tend to make mistakes. We tend to be a little bit like Jonah sometimes, and we don't live quite the life we're supposed to. You notice Jonah said the right things when he went to the city of Nineveh to preach to them, but he did not have the right attitude and did not live the way God wanted him to. And one of the problems with being that God's calling for us to be righteous people who do God's works is that we mess it up. And we've got a dirty past of all sorts of things that we've done that we shouldn't have done. And some of us are doing those things right now. We wonder, could God ever use someone like me? It's interesting, I've been reading a few books on uh, the Toronto Blessing, which went on in the sort of mid-90s in Toronto, Canada. And there was this big um, sort of move of revival, and lots of people became Christians during that time. Lots of people were filled with the Holy Spirit and really sort of spread across the globe. But some of the people that were of big influence there during that time, uh, some of the prosperity gospel preachers, the, the Benny Hinn's, and other such likes. And what you'll notice is back then those people were well respected and revered, but now they've come out as, you know, doing very, very dodgy things in the name of Jesus. So much so that they'd have these big prayer and healing meetings when they'd invite people to come up the front, but you would only get picked if you had no physical disability. So, for example, if anyone had, you know, like a wheelchair or was on crutches, or had something like cerebral palsy, you don't get to be part of the healing because they can't guarantee it. But if you have some sort of infirmity which you can't confirm on the stage, then sure, you're welcome to come up. Very, very dodgy. And this has been going on for decades all across the prosperity preaching world. And so what happens then is you see guys like this who are doing really dodgy stuff and yet at the same time thousands, even tens of thousands of people have come to genuine faith in Jesus through the ministry of these people. And you go, what the? 
As if God would use someone who is totally pulling the wool over people's eyes and got sort of fake healing things going on and promising all sorts of blessings if you give them money, which we don't do. And the Bible says you shouldn't do. And yet still people genuinely come to faith. What does that tell us? That tells us actually something really important. Of course, the hypocrisy is really bad. And I've already made mention of that. But the, thing, the important thing that it tells us is that God works by grace. It does not depend on the competency or even the morality of the speaker. And God will deal with those people. I can tell you now, God is a just judge and he will deal with those people who misuse and misappropriate his word and his gospel. But the grace of God shows us that he can use anyone. You notice the, hero, the heroes of the Bible are what I, I like to call a menagerie of muck-ups. Jacob, who we mentioned earlier, Jacob was a spoiled brat and took advantage of his brother. Abraham told everyone that his wife was his sister and basically denied God's promise upon his life. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. These people had messy lives in the Bible, and the Bible just gives it to us warts and all. Why? Because we have a God of grace who uses messy people. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to live righteous lives, of course. But it does show us something very powerful, is that God uses broken, messy, ordinary people with a bad past, like you and me, And he wants to change us to be more like his son, Jesus, and grow us in love for Jesus so that we'll turn away from that life. But he will by every means use you if you will give yourself to him. So what is the type of disciple that we don't expect? Listen, verse 42. He says, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The little ones. Who are the little ones? When you look at the context of chapter 10, you begin to realize that the little ones are the disciples that Jesus is instructing, the 12. We see in chapter 11, verse 1, that's exactly who Jesus is talking to. Little ones is to be the attitude of Jesus' disciples and the primary attitude of Jesus' disciples. And it's not what you might expect. Because you generally expect the disciples of Jesus to be these bold prophets who speak God's word really well. Or you might expect them to be these great righteous people who have outstanding moral lives and have never stuffed up, not even once. And yet Jesus... It was just using those two things as examples. But then he turns to his disciples and says, these little ones, little ones. Why would Jesus call his disciples little ones? Well, firstly, being all about the Bible and all about good works, as we've already mentioned, can create problems. You can be filled up with pride or not practice what you preach. 
And the Pharisees were experts at the Bible and experts at righteous living. And they totally missed the message of Jesus and they missed God in the flesh. Because Jesus says, if you receive him, you receive the one who sent him. And for all their Bible reading and for all their righteous living, they missed God in the flesh. And so little ones are humble people. Little ones are people who make Jesus the big one in their life. Jesus uses this term to humble his followers, to make them know that it's not about their message and it's really not about them, but it's about him. When you're a little one, you know who the big one is. The big one is Jesus. If Jesus is the big one in your life, then you can be confident and comfortable and content with being a little one of his. Because when you know who he is, you know who you are. You know whose little ones you are. There's this beautiful illustration Martin Lloyd-Jones uses in a sermon when he's talking about the fatherhood of God. And he uses this illustration of a little boy running up between the legs of his father and just sort of playing around his father. And the father just picks him up and looks at him with great joy and kisses him because he loves the little boy. And they share in great joy as father and son. They share in great joy because the father loves the child and the child loves the father and they just like being together. And the access that a Christian has to God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ is just like that. It's like a little boy who can come to their father who no one else quite has the same access to the father in that way. They can just run up and grab them around their legs and just show their love for them. It would be embarrassing for an adult to do that, but for a little child, it's loving and great and wonderful. In a beautiful way, we see that is the kind of people God wants us to be. Little ones, because he is our father and we have received the son. We must remember too, that when we are little ones, we represent the sender. That is, Jesus himself is the focus. Not us and our good works, not us and our good words, but Jesus himself. One of the beautiful examples in the Bible of this is John the Baptist. And he said, he must become greater, talking about Jesus, and I must become lesser. And if you want to be a little one for Jesus, then you must become lesser and Jesus must become greater in your life. And so truly, the calling of a disciple then is to become not a great prophet and not a great righteous person, though those things are important. The primary thing that you need to be is one of Christ's little ones. And one of the things that I absolutely love is that in the book of Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says it was the first time that the people in Antioch, which was a city that had received the Gospels, that people started preaching and coming to faith in Jesus. A church had been started there. And it says they started calling them Christians or little Christs. Why did they start calling them Christians? It was actually a derogatory term. 
They couldn't think of another name for them because they weren't like the Jews. They weren't waiting for a Messiah still. They weren't just you know, Bible people and they weren't just morally upstanding people. They were different. They were anyone. Jews, Gentiles, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, everyone with a bad past. Anyone could be a Christian and they lived different lives. And the reason that people knew they were Christians is because they told people the person they believed in. The word Christians means little Christs. They'd become little ones and they were living like it. And so they gave them this derogatory name, Christians. And you know what we did? We've held on to that name ever since Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. And we said, that's exactly what we want to be. We want to be small in the eyes of the world because we don't need to be big and proud because we have a big God. We know whose we are. When you know that you're a child of the Father, you can be at peace in your own skin. You're happy to share in the grace of God that you receive. You're confident to do good things for God's glory because you know that you're His and He is yours. I want to finish by telling you how Jesus became a little one for us. It's interesting to think that we are called to be little ones, but it's even more interesting and incredible that Jesus would become a little one. Firstly, in his incarnation. That is God the Creator, and I've mentioned this already this morning. God the Creator came as a human. He became God with us, Emmanuel. Secondly, in his life, Jesus was truly a righteous man, but he was also a friend to tax collectors and sinners. He loved the unrighteous people and he ate with them. In his words, Jesus was a prophet, but he was never a hypocrite. He truly practiced what he preached all the time. You can read it for yourself in the four Gospels. In his humility, he became a little one. One of my favorite times when Jesus demonstrates his humility is when he entered Jerusalem for the last time. And people were shouting out, Hosanna! Hosanna as he comes in the name of the Lord. They knew that this was the Messiah and he was riding into Jerusalem, not with an army behind him and on a big stallion, but on the foal of a donkey as he entered that city. In his death, he shows us that he is a little one. Jesus died at the hand of sinners, in the seat of sinners, and called a sinner on that rugged cross. And yet he was totally blameless. He was, in fact, becoming the least of the little ones so that we might become his treasure possession, so that we would be his little ones. He became the least that we might be his. The Bible tells us that he died to save the least of these, that his seeking and saving of the lost would come at the cost of his own life to pay the penalty for our sin, to wash us clean by his blood so that we might be his people. And finally, in his resurrection, Jesus was humbled and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him to the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come up and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your promise. of what sort of disciples you would have and that you kept your promise where you became a little one yourself. You became the least of these on a cross that we might become your people. What a beautiful thing. What a joy it is to know that you are the God who stepped into our world for us. And so we worship and praise you and give thanks for you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.